Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3. Almost done now, I think, with this little series we've been in on stories from the Old Testament. Might do a couple more, but uh, we're we're getting close to the end. If there's a particular uh, Old Testament story that intrigues you that you would like to make sure is included, please let me know. But I think we've covered most of them now that uh, most people would ask for. So today we're going to look at three men in the fire, Daniel chapter 3. As always, if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab the one in front of you there in the seat. If you don't uh, own a Bible, you're welcome to take that as our gift to you. Daniel chapter 3, begin reading in verse number 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and the psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Father God, we are thankful. We are thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for these wonderful uh, accounts in the Old Testament that remind us of so much uh, of the truth uh, about you. And I pray today as we look at this that, uh, Father, you speak to our hearts. Uh, you help us to see the importance of these things and the, uh, the glorious uh, application to our lives. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me today to preach. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me to say the things I should and anything I ought not, that you would uh, just take it out of my mind. I wouldn't even think it. And uh, help me, Lord, to just preach boldly accurately, practically, rightly, and uh, pray that all the rest of us would have ears to hear and that we would listen to what you have to say this day. So speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel describes events that took place in Babylon when the Jews were in captivity there. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's amazing how many times you have to say that when you read that particular passage of Scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Jews of the captivity. That had impressed the king of Babylon enough that uh, he had promoted them, Daniel also, into positions of leadership in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And our story begins in verse number 1 with him making a great image of gold. Now, those who attend here often know that I have uh, some favorite sources of information that I like to look at when I'm studying the Bible, and one is anything written by James Montgomery Boyce. I just like his the way he, he uh, interprets things from the Bible, and as I was reading his commentary on Daniel about this, he has a very interesting interpretation uh, 
of Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. He says that in order to understand the, the significance of the image, you need to consider what happened in the previous chapter. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and in that dream, uh, he had dreamed of a great image. Daniel had then come along and interpreted that dream for him. Daniel described the dream to the king in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 32. If you want to look over there, you can follow along with me. Daniel said this image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel went on to explain that each part of the image represented a kingdom. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in Babylon. That kingdom would be superseded by another kingdom, represented uh, by the chest and arms of silver. That would be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, which followed uh, the Babylonian Empire. And then yet another lesser kingdom would come along, Greece. And that's the, represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze in that image. And then finally by Rome, which was represented in that dream as the legs and feet of iron and clay. And then all those kingdoms would be done away. When Christ, the stone that was cut out uh, and, and struck the feet of that image, he would destroy the kingdoms of the world and set up his own everlasting and all-encompassing kingdom. That was the image. But Boyce suggests here that what's happening in chapter 3 is that this image was built entirely of gold because Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that dream. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the fact that that head of gold was temporary. Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the fact that his kingdom was going to be replaced by another kingdom. And so he was trying to rewrite history here. He wanted the whole to be gold. God had told him what was to be, but that wasn't acceptable to him. He was rewriting prophecy to fit his view of how he wanted it to be. And, and I don't know if that's correct or not, but I think it's a very inter interesting interpretation uh, that this fellow puts forth. And he concludes that long section on this by, by saying this. He, he thinks that this means that there is a major theme in the book of Daniel, which is this. Whose God is God? And who rules history? Well, as we're going to see here in just a few moments, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be schooled in that very question, in the answer to that question, uh, in this chapter 3. I haven't found any better way to look at these stories than to just follow the same outline with each one. We first of all look at what happened. And then we spend a few moments talking about some application. What does it mean to us? So we're going to do that again here today. It seems to work pretty well. So what happened here? Well, the first thing that happened was there was an unreasonable and evil government request or demand, really. We see that in verses 1 through 7. The story starts off simply enough with this image. Nebuchadnezzar built an image of gold. It was big. Sixty cubits would translate to about 90 feet high. Nine feet wide. In other words, it was as tall as an eight-story building. That's quite an image. 
Now, the scripture doesn't say what the image looked like. Some suggest it might have been an obelisk. And the reason that they go that way is because nine feet wide by 90 feet high, the uh, dimensions there don't seem to work for a, a statue of a human being. Uh, it's too narrow. It would be too skinny. Uh, and so they, they say, well, it must have been an obelisk. Augustine takes a different approach. He says if you consider that, that nine feet wide is really not the width, but it's the depth from front of the chest to the back of the chest, then that does work. And so maybe it was an image of a person. If Boyce is correct, and this all has to do with that previous chapter, then I think it must have been an image of a person, perhaps an image representing uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself, 90 feet high. Now, if his actions had stopped right there, if his actions had stopped with just building a monument, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of concern with that, would there? Had he built a gold huge statue of himself to commemorate all his self-inflated greatness. We wouldn't have even been surprised by that, would we? Arrogant leaders of men have been doing that since the beginning of time. Visit Egypt and view the pyramids. Read the historical accounts of kingdoms long gone, left behind by kings to recount their great exploits, even in America. You don't have to go very far in America. Go to Washington, D.C. There's a pretty big obelisk right there. Uh, dedicated to George Washington. Go to the Lincoln Memorial, uh, where he is commemorated there in the monument bearing his name. Drive to South Dakota and look at Mount Rushmore and see the faces of four presidents commemorated there. This sort of activity is common. Just about every president in recent history has had a, a big, fancy presidential library to commemorate their rule. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't just build a monument. He built an idol, and that's different. He built an idol, and he was requiring all his people to bow down and worship it. He wasn't just asking for allegiance to the state, like pledging allegiance to the flag. If he was doing that, these three men might have just rightly bowed down and obeyed. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do as Christians? Paul told the Romans, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Peter wrote, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. There's nothing wrong with paying respect to human authority. Actually, quite the opposite is true. As Christians, we have a duty to do just as those verses suggest. As Christians, we are not to speak evil of our rulers, Exodus 22 and Acts 23, we are to pray for kings and those in authority, 1 Timothy 2. And we are to respect and obey their authority, so long as doing so does not violate God's ultimate authority. So these men could have bowed down to that image, if that's all Nebuchadnezzar was asking, if it was just political respect that was desired. But that's not what he was asking. It was worship that Nebuchadnezzar was demanding, and worship was just what they could never provide. As Jews who worshipped Yahweh, Jehovah, their first commandment was, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Exodus chapter 20. They couldn't do it. The command to worship the image is what was the problem. So that command was given. The 
command to worship, the instruments played, all those instruments played, the music that was to signal the time for the worship was played, and everybody bowed down to the image. Verse number 7. I find it interesting, that particular verse, all the people and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. I mean, certainly there must have been some others there who had a little problem with this, but the scripture seems to indicate that they all bowed down. You know, in our culture, we tend to believe that the majority rules. We tend to think that if everybody's saying something, it must be right. In our day and age of social media, it's worse than it's ever been. If it's mob rule you're referring to, well, then that's true. The mob oftentimes gets its way. But the majority is often, this, this flies in the face of us as Americans, but the majority is often, maybe even most of the time, wrong. I mean, they certainly were here. No less a theologian than my dear mother used to say, if everybody told you to go jump off of a cliff, would you do it? And I'm sure your mother probably said something very similar to you when you, like all children, came up with that brilliant and you believed original idea, you know, that everybody else is doing it. Uh, the fact is, the majority is usually wrong. They all bowed down. God said you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Yet they all bowed down. All that is, except for these three, Shadrach, Meshach. Abednego. These three refused to obey. Now we know this because somebody tattled on them. Verse number 8. There were some tattletales there. There was no doubt a contingent of people in the government that were out of power or out of favor with the king because he had promoted these three men over him, over them at the end of the previous chapter. You can see that in Daniel chapter 2 verses 48 and 49. The losers, therefore, had some desire to hurt or destroy these three men. So motivated most likely by jealousy. Jealousy that the Jews were promoted over them. Jealousy that the Jews were successful when they were not. At least that's got to be one motivation. But there was more than political intrigue at play here too. These were believers. Believers in the one true God. And such believers always stand out, don't they? Believers always have a target on their back are always actively targeted by our adversary, the devil, who walketh about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The real issue is seen a few verses further down in Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to their refusal to bow. In verse number 15, he said, Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? This was a God thing, not just a political thing. It was about the arrogance of a godless government and a godless king that would defy God himself. Who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the first king to ask such a question. Sennacherib wasn't a king. He was a general, but he had asked a similar question when he and his army had Jerusalem in their sights. He said, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from me? And to Moses, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood the issue perfectly, and there was no way they would worship any god but Jehovah. I love their response. I love their response when the king offered them one last chance to recant in verses 14 and 15. 
They just flatly refused. I think they were fairly respectful in their refusal, but they, they, they were pretty settled. And they were pretty unmovable. Their words in verses 16 through 18 might be paraphrased as, there is no point in debating this with you, King Nebuchadnezzar. We are on two different sides of this issue, and nothing will ever change that. You are not going to change our minds. We know that God can deliver us, but whether he chooses to do so or not, we will not violate his law and bow to your image. Very simple. They flatly refused. So what happened? The king tossed them into the fire. He was so enraged at their refusal to worship him that he had the fire stoked as high as it had ever been, as high as it could possibly be. The three men were bound up and tossed in there. The people who tossed them in there, the fire was so hot that as they got close enough to the fire to throw them in, they were instantly killed in the effort. But the three Hebrew children, the three Hebrew men, were delivered. They weren't killed. I should probably spend more time on this amazing deliverance because the deliverance is really a cool part of the story. I want to make some application, though, so I'm just going to summarize this for just a few moments. But just think about this. The the furnace was apparently constructed in such a way that the king and others could see into its depths. Now, I don't know what it looked like. It must have had something on the side of it that they could look through uh, and view it from a safe distance. But when they looked in, hoping to see all this writhing and suffering and, you know, consumption that the flames would happen to these people... That's not what they saw. They saw something else. Nebuchadnezzar was first to mention it. He said, wait a minute. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Look, I see four. Four men. Loose. Walking in the fire. Fire's not hurting them. And the fourth is like the Son of God. Verses 24 through 25. Think about this. What a glorious sight this must have been. Meditate on this for just a few moments. Think about what it must have looked like. They were unbound now. They were free now. They were with the fourth man, just walking around in there, untouched and unharmed. Oh, how what a picture that is. It's another example of a theophany, by the way. We've seen a lot of those, haven't we, in our stories in the Old Testament. A theophany was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. He, he Jesus Christ, was there with them in the fire. In their time of greatest trial, greatest need, he was there. And they were safe, even from the hottest fire that the most powerful force on earth could generate. They were safe. Well, the king ordered them to come out. Apparently, they could just walk out of the furnace, probably through the same aperture that he was viewing them through. And I think it's interesting, the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure all who read this story would realize the full extent of his deliverance. The satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Not even the smell of the devil's fire was on them. It's an astonishing deliverance. Well, that's what happened. There was an evil and unreasonable government demand. There were three Jews who refused to obey and were tossed into the fire as a result, and and there was an amazing deliverance. So what does it mean? I mean, how do we apply it to our lives? Last week, we just had one particular application. I think there's a few here, and so let me just mention a few in no particular order. The first would be this. Regardless of cost, 
believers must stand for God, regardless of cost. These three men understood perfectly that they might have to die in the flames. When they stood up to the king, they knew the cost. They might have to die. There, there have been many who have stood for right, and it cost their lives. Whether God delivers us or not is his sovereign choice, and it's not the driving influence as to whether or not we serve and worship him. We stand for him no matter what. Sometimes defiance is the answer. No matter what. No matter the cost. Let me quote from Boyce one more time. He said, let me say at this point so that we will understand this story at the proper level that this is the problem that confronts every follower of the true God when the requirements of serving him come into conflict with the demands of a secular state. I mean by this not merely a demand to do an openly wicked thing or die for refusing to do it, like refusing to turn over or kill Jews in Nazi Germany. I mean any pressure to disobey the teachings of the Bible, whether by peers in your school, by fellow employees, by employers, or by whoever it may be. Whenever you are pressured to do something or not to do something that you know by the teachings of the Bible to be wrong or right, your situation is that of these three men. And your responsibility before God is the same. Also, you must do the right. You must do the right. You must not bow down to the world's demands, even if the consequences are costly. We're living in an age in our country where the lines are becoming increasingly clear. Actually, I think the lines are drawn quite clearly. I'm astonished that you mentioned what you did in Sunday school this morning, Brother Bob, because I was going to mention the exact same thing. We have a certain contingent now in our government that has come out plainly, openly, proudly, in favor of murdering our children. It used to be that they would hide their true intentions behind definitions and playing around with words and things. They would say that a child was not a child until it was born. So long as it remained in the womb, it was a fetus, and therefore just disposing of it was just disposing of tissue. It was not murder. But now we have men and women in our government who actually have voted to allow a baby to be murdered even after it has been born. I say to you that this is no different than the idolatrous practices in the Old Testament where they sacrifice their children to the idolatrous god Molech. There's no difference in this whatsoever. And if every Christian of voting age in this country had the courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these godless people would not be in our country for another day. And those who attend here know that I don't preach politics from the pulpit. And you're saying, well, you're doing it right now. No, I'm not. I don't think that's what preachers are called to do. I know people have yelled at me for that. I've had people come to me and say, why don't you tell us how to vote? I don't think that's what preachers are supposed to do. I think preachers are supposed to preach the gospel. I think we're supposed to preach the Bible. But I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not preaching politics right now when I say that if you vote for a candidate who believes in killing our babies, you are sinning. That's not politics. That's the Bible. I don't know how else to read my Bible. I don't care what political party that person is in. If they believe in killing babies and you vote them into office, you are sinning. I don't see how else to do it. You see, it's a key application from our story. Regardless of cost, believers must stand for God. They must stand for right, no matter what. The characters in Daniel 3 had to face this question, whose God is God? Who rules? And so too do we. 
I love verses 17 and 18 in the King James Version because it makes their defiance even stronger. It says there in that version, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We will not I almost named the sermon that today because that's such a great thought. We will not. And sometimes Christians have to do that. Sometimes we have to say that. We will not. So that's first application. And now that I've made everybody mad, we'll move on to the second one. Regardless of cost, believers must stand for God. The second application I see is this. Faith says, I know that God can. I know that God can. I think verse 17 might be the greatest statement of faith found anywhere in the Bible. At least one of them. It was a direct answer to Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant question in verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Their question was, or their answer was thunderous. Our God. Our God, whom we serve, is able. Do you know that? Our God is able. Faith says, I know that God can. There is nothing about which we can rightly say he cannot. Great and mighty is the Lord our God. Great and mighty is he. The prophet Jeremiah reminded his readers that God can. He said, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Faith says, I know God can can. They said that. But faith also says something else. Faith says, even if he does not, I will trust him. Even if he does not. You see, that's the hard part, isn't it? That's what makes faith, faith. It's the very definition of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Even if we don't see his deliverance the way we think we should, we will still trust him. That's the way these guys believed. They knew God could deliver them. They also knew he might have something else planned. And their faith was such that they trusted him whether he wanted them to die in the fire or whether he wanted to deliver them from the fire. They said, in effect, our God will deliver us either from death or in death. But either way, we trust him. Our God has all power, and we will always, and He will always deliver us, just not necessarily as we would expect or ask, and we will still trust Him. Songwriter said, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. Faith says, like Job said, though He slay me, Yet will I trust him. So faith says, I know God can. And faith also says, even if he does not, I will trust him. One last uh, application and we'll be done. Should he take you through the fire, he'll be there with you. Should he take you through the fire, he'll be there with you. I think it's such a wonderful picture in verse number 25. Jesus was there with them in the midst of the fire. What an amazing thing. Isaiah said, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Jesus was there 
with them in the fire. In their greatest trial, at the time of their greatest need, he was there. Have you walked through a fire? You ever been through a fire? I have. And I can testify that Jesus walked with me. Maybe you're in the midst of some flames right now. If you're a child of God, he'll be with you right through the middle of it, no matter the intensity of the fire. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar said. They thundered back, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Father God, we're thankful for the glory of this story. We're thankful for the amazement that we feel when we read about it, when we think about it, just what took place here. One of the most wonderful illustrations in Scripture of your deliverance of your people. And so I pray today as we think through these things and as we apply them to our lives, I pray, Lord, that we'd, we'd rejoice if we're believers. We rejoice for the, uh, the wonder of it, that you're there with us in the midst of whatever it is you would have us to go through, that we can trust 100% that we have a God who can. And even when we don't see what you're doing, and maybe you don't answer in the way we expect you to, yet, Lord, we can trust you still that you'll deliver us either from the flames or in the flames. And so, Lord, I pray, help those who are Christians here today to take heart, to be encouraged, to be strengthened by these things. And I pray, Lord, for those today who might be thinking about this in a different way, people who maybe who have not yet trusted you as Savior. There might be some here today, Lord, who don't know you. There might be some here today who have never said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm on my way to hell and I need to be saved and uh, I'm trusting Christ. There, there might be some like that. And so I pray this day that if there are those who need to be saved, they'd step out as we sing. Then let's take the Bible and show them for sure how they can know, how they can be able to answer the question, if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. Father, if there's anybody like that that needs to be able to answer that question, uh, help them. Whatever the needs might be, as we wrap up our service with just a couple verses of a song, as we open the altar and give an invitation, help us to respond as you would have us to, and we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.